business set up yet or anything? Working on it. Are you? What are you working on? I don't know. I, I think it'd be nice to drag up. <laughs> One of the characteristics that God of the Bible describes him as is the God of all comfort. Not just some, not just many, but all comfort. From pandemics to job losses to broken relationships and even death. God knows our every affliction, down to the tiniest, most painful things of As our Maker, He understands us and our feelings more than we do. He shows us compassion for the wonderful Father. Read with me what Paul writes about a great comfort. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in the affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by them. The Bible shows us God is eager to provide comfort to his children, and in any and all seasons, whatever the trial we face, our Heavenly Father knows the situation and offers comfort as needed. He is our source of peace and happiness and blessing. And for us, that's good news. Would you stand and praise this good God who is our comfort and is eager to provide comfort to his children in any and every season?
Good morning, Good morning, church. church. This time we'll go ahead and dismiss our three to five year olds in their class and they can head out. out. Three to five year olds. And if you've got your Bible, grab that then. Jonah chapter two is where we will be. We are in our fourth. Uh, fourth uh, week in our series, the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, we're going to be looking at. And the big idea here that we're going to be looking at today is that God's, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Right, you probably heard that before. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's, it's in a song we sing. I don't know the title of the song. Uh, but it is one of the songs that we sung. Uh, it's also in Romans 4, which mentions God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But one of the one things, things I hope, hope we are able to see today is that, that God's, God's kindness is might look differently than what we would like to experience. And it might look differently than what we would like to experience. And you'll see what I mean here in a moment. But the big idea there again is God's kindness. And when I mean by God's kindness, I'm referring to God's grace and His mercy. And not to say that I pull those in as the same thing. God's grace is, is giving you something that you don't deserve. And at the same time, His mercy is withholding from you something that you do deserve. And so we're going to be looking at how those things kind of come together in the story of Jonah here today. His grace and mercy giving you what you don't deserve while also withholding from you what you do deserve. His kindness and how that then leads us to repentance. And by repentance, I mean... Turning from, from trusting, trusting yourself to trusting in God through faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so we're going to look at our text today, Jonah chapter 2. And as we walk through this text together, I'll have four points for you to see how this prayer of repentance from Jonah is broken down. And so Jonah 2, starting in verse 1. And before we jump into this, I know we just prayed, but I want to pray again. Uh, since we are preaching on a prayer, I think prayer is just good to continue to dive into as we, as we walk through this. Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your kindness, which does lead us to repentance. And my prayer for us today is that as we see this rich prayer from Jonah, that we would begin to see with clear eyes and with clear hearts and with clear minds how it is that you actually bring about repentance in our lives. 
how it is that you actually redeem us and rescue us and save us from ourselves. And so, so Lord, as we walk through this, my prayer is that again, we would see this story of Jonah not as just something to um, to just think about or to remember from childhood stories that we had of looking at Jonah as a big fish, but that we actually see God's story and the word that God is proclaiming to each one of us in this room today. Because there is a part of every single person in this room that is like Jonah in the sense that we we are called by you every single day to, to live in joyful obedience and yet, Lord, we, we run the other way. We rebel. And yet, you continue in your grace and your mercy. You pursue us. You pursue us. And you redeem us. And you bring us to the end of ourselves. So we thank you for that, Lord, and I pray again that we see that as we walk through this, this story, this prayer. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Jonah 2, looking at verse 1, starting there. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of the I cried, and you heard my voice. Here, what John is doing in first and foremost is he's, he's praying Psalm 18, 4 through 6. And there's actually quite a few references throughout in his prayer uh, that's not just him kind of like saying, hey, I'm going to pray some things that I think just sound good. But what he's actually doing is he's praying scripture that he knows. And this is on all the references that are pulled from these eight or nine verses is coming from Psalm 18. Psalm 30, Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 69, Psalm 120, Psalm 130, and Psalm 42. And in nine verses of a prayer, he's pulling from eight different psalms what God has called him to do, and to believe, and to think, and to know. And a couple of things that I want to say before I actually get into the first point. First and foremost is, two quick notes here. Head knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. But what we're seeing here is Jonah is actually getting to pray a very rich theological and, and, and weighty uh, prayer that is full of biblical knowledge. But, but what that also tells us is that he already has this knowledge to begin with. He had the knowledge before he even went on the rebellion. Before he got on the ship, before he made a fair, before he uh, went out into the storm, before he was overthrown, before he was called by the belly of the fish. Like he didn't get into the belly of the fish, and then all of a sudden the Lord just uploaded this knowledge to him. No, he possesses knowledge already. And I think a warning for us is that oftentimes we believe that just biblical knowledge equals spiritual maturity. And Jonah is an example where that's not true. That's not true. Because he's acting out of spiritual immaturity, even though he's filled with biblical knowledge. Second thing that I want you to see from that is also heart emotions do not equal spiritual maturity. You, you can't just feel your way to God. You can't motivate your way to God. Faith that is alive is a faith that is in both spirit and in truth. 
And what and we, we know of Jonah is that he might have been filled with biblical knowledge, but he had a biblical knowledge that did not reach down to the affections and desires of his heart. They were not transformed yet to elevate and match the level of his biblical knowledge. But sometimes the warning then can be, well, if, if you can be full of biblical knowledge and not yet be spiritually mature, well, then maybe biblical knowledge isn't anything that really points into the equation. So let's just focus on uh, the heart. And let's just focus on the emotions and the affections for Jesus and never dive into any biblical knowledge. Never, Never dive, dive into growing in what that might look like. Never, Never dive into the word of God. God. But again, but again, that, that could be a warning in and of itself, because if you are only focusing on the motivation and the affection for the Lord, but you have nothing to steer you in the right direction, then you can just believe whatever you want to believe and think whatever you want to think. And, and oftentimes you will actually worship God, God incorrectly. And God gives no glory in that. He gives no glory in that. Because that's why principles that you believe when you feel are right, yet again are not biblical. And I think this is why one of the biggest ministries of the, uh, of the first apostles and pastors of the early church was that their primary role was the ministry of the word and prayer. Because, because what, what their, their job was is, is to preach what God has expanded, preach what God has spoken, preach what God has revealed to us through his inspired word, and pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work of taking what's in your head and getting it into your heart. So that you are an actual spiritually mature person who has who is who's rightly thinking, thinking about, about the Lord and His will, as well as, well as feeling rightly about the Lord and His will. So that, that it actually motivates us with correct motivations, correct affections, correct desires, that allows us to, to, to actually put us in death and to walk in step with the Spirit. So those, so those are just kind of two, two those are three, those are side of just this, this idea of Jonah beginning to pray this beautifully rich theological prayer, while at the same time, it really wasn't alive to him prior to him being in this entire circumstance. It really wasn't alive to him until he got to this place. And that's what we see. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answers me, which is another fancy way of saying help, or the grave or the pit. I cried and heard my voice. So the first thing I want you to see here, the first point, is that God always answers our call. That's the first point. And that might seem elementary, and that's okay. But Jonah found himself in a situation he considers to be a distress. So much so that he believes he's in the belly of a shield, which is what I meant. It's their fancy reference for the underworld, or the grave, or hell. And as we talked about last week, he comes to the end of himself. Nowhere else to run, nowhere else to hide. And he's found himself in a situation where he is utterly dependent on the Lord to save him. He's utterly dependent on the Lord to save him. There's no fair, there's no taking him by, taking a different ship. He is stuck. He is stuck. It's as if he's been in prison for a crime and he gets one call. One call. I'd like to make a call here. Well, he's call him. He calls out to the Lord. And here's, here's the character of God. God heard him and God answered him. God heard him and God answered him. 
We oftentimes believe the tense means that I must get my act together and then call out to God in order for him to answer me. But here, Jonah was the furthest away from being clean and having his act together. And as I said last week, there's, there's no one too far gone. There's no sin too great where a sinner can't cry out to God. And God hears them and God answers them. So that's the first point. Again, it seems elementary, but it's true. It's true. God answers our call. He doesn't, he doesn't screen your calls. He, he doesn't leave your text messages unread. He, he doesn't tease you with like the three dots and then they go dark and you're like, where is he? Like when we call out to him, he hears and he answers. And that's good news for us. That's good news. Now let's get into a part of Jonah's prayer that's, that's a little deeper. No, no pun intended in this, but look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The second point I want you to see here, and this is a hard one. God may wound you in order to heal you. God may wound you in order to heal you. God may cast you into the deep, and that does not make him mean nor evil. It doesn't. It actually makes him just and then merciful. When you read that phrase from Jonah's prayer, for you, Lord, cast me into the deep. If you don't have a theology, an understanding of total depravity, then here God is just mean. He's just mean. Like how dare he just cast someone to the depths of the ocean or as Jonah puts it, to the depths of hell and yet God remains completely holy, good, and just. How does that happen? Well, here's why. God's currency is either life or death. That's it. That's the currency that God uses. Obedience to God is life and disobedience to God is death. You see, here in America, we think in terms of the punishment should match the crime. Like, that's how we think. That's how we've set up our system. If I disobey the speed limit, I might get a $150 fine. If I break into someone's house and rob them, I I might get a theft charge and 2 to 12 years in prison. If I take someone's life, I might get life in prison or lethal injection, depending on what state you're in. We, We tend to match the punishment to the crime. So we've been molded to view God this way. That if if someone lies, then God should just slap them on the wrist. Or in the case of Jonah, all he did was cancel an appointment with God in Nineveh. Like He he called out sick from work and said, I'm going to go take a vacation real quick. I'll get back to that maybe another time. Like that's the crime we're looking at with With Jonah is, Lord, I just don't want to do that right now. Or maybe ever in his his case. So we've been molded to think this way. And this is where I want to strengthen your theology. There's no categorization of sin. There's no categorization of sin. Sin is simply disobeying God's commands. And you have to remember... God's commands are not evil. 
God's commands are not evil. He's not ruling like Hitler or Stalin or Putin for that matter. He's not saying with evil intentions, my way or no way. That's not how God is operating. On the contrary, he's saying with fullness of life and good intentions, my way or no way. He is saying with fullness of life and good intentions, this is the best thing for you. If you want life and life to the full, then obey my commands. Trust my commands. Live out my design for humanity and culture in order for it to flourish. It's the only design that leads to the flourishing and fullness of life. So to say no to God's commands is to say no to life. It's to say no to life because it then ushers in for you death. This is the first declared, this is first declared to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We see this in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. This is the way God set it up. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You may, you may draw on all that the garden has to offer you. You may explore and experience all that creation has for you. Every single bit of it is at your disposal. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. Don't partake of this one thing. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now think about this. This is not heavy handed. This isn't this isn't like how we parent today, right? I mean, how many rules are in your household if you have kids? Do this. Don't do this. Eat this. Don't eat this. If you do this, you'll be in time out. If you do this, you get a treat like hundreds of rules we have in our households, unless you're hippies and it's just a free for all. But we all have rules set up. And for Adam and Eve, one rule. One rule. It was not heavy handed. And, and many theologians believe that the reason for the one rule is because it was to remind Adam and Eve that obedience to God, one, reveals that God is always in charge. Like it, it, it creates a level of submission that there's always God who is sovereign and in control and in charge. And that they are to submit to his goodness his gifts and all that he has designed for them to experience for the fullness of life remembering that it's in submission to his commands that allows them to play and allows them to enjoy and allows them to have joy and and to, to just experience the fullness of all that God has offered for them and two reveals that obedience to God equals life and life abundant which thus reveals that disobedience to God equals death and life no more. Like Adam and Eve didn't kill anybody. They didn't break, any, break into anyone's homes. They, they weren't on the street corner selling drugs to one another. They weren't creating Ponzi schemes. They weren't laundering cash. Like all they did was they listened to the serpent who said, God's withholding something from you. And they believed that in God withholding something from them, that God was in some way evil or mean. And so they wanted to take charge themselves. So God, 
in this or any level of disobedience is equal in God's sight because it is simply disobedience. No longer trusting the Lord as the creator of life and it disconnects yourself from the source and the creator of life and that is what ultimately brings about pain and death for yourself. So in that, God the creator remains good and just to give, as a consequence, death to anyone who sins against him. Whether it's a lie or a murder or disobeying your mom and dad or not making disciples, not worshiping God, not praying. Like there's, there's not only the sins of commission, which is don't do this, but there's the sins of omission, which is I should do this and I don't. All of those things, as Romans 6.23 says, causes us to deserve death. This is where we begin to see the mercy of the Lord. So when we read, For you, Lord, cast me into the deep, it is not mean nor evil of God to do this to Jonah. And really what Jonah is saying there is, Lord, you are right for casting me into the deep because I have sinned against you. I am deserving of your wrath. I am deserving of hell. Remember what Jonah said in chapter 1, verse 12? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So when he's cast into the waters and he's saying, Lord, you cast me into the waters. He's understanding here that it's the combination of the consequences of his disobedience as well as the sovereignty of God to be just. And casting him into the deep. And so yes Jonah is responsible for his sin and his actions. And the consequences that come from his rebellion. But here's the big but. But because of the gospel. Because of the voluntary death of Jesus Christ on the cross in Jonah's place. God is able to not deal us the sentence of death. Now he may allow us to taste it. To the point of us crying out to him for, for relief and rescue and salvation and forgiveness. And that's exactly what God does with Jonah. He wounds Jonah in order for Jonah to repent. To cry out to God so that God will then extend to him salvation. Look at this in verse 3 through 6. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Verse 3 indicates here that Jonah was literally drowning. Submerged in the water from the waves surrounding him. Getting entangled in the weeds at the bottom. Unable to even climb out of the water because of the cliffs and the ridges at the shore. And he believes God put him in this place. You see, when we take life into our own hands. When we submit to our own wills and desires and affections. That are contrary to the Lord's. It puts us in this place. It kills us. It destroys us. Proverbs 14.1 puts it this way. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. And you're like, why are you yelling at the women here? 
Well, then in verse 12, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And all the women say yes and amen. If God were to leave us to our own hands and our own minds, we kill ourselves every single time. We begin to drown like Jonah. And that's why it is good for the Lord to discipline us and wound us in order to allow us to a wake up call. To allow us the opportunity to repent, to turn from our ways and to trust him and follow him. And it's then when we look back on the wounding of the Lord that we were able to see that it was actually an act of grace, kindness, and mercy for him to wound us. Much like a doctor or physician might wound you in order to heal you ultimately. Kelsey can say amen to that (laughs) this week. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave. That slams me into the rock of ages. And so that's our second point. That God in his infinite goodness and kindness. Might wound you at times to bring you to your knees. To cry out to him. For life. For salvation. For forgiveness. I mean how evil would it be if he just left us. To play in the streets without yelling and rebuking us. Of the car that is heading towards us. How how evil Would he be if he just left us to play in the kitchen wanting to grab the pot of boiling water without smacking our hand away right before we burn ourselves? At times, that discipline of the Lord might hurt, but it's better than death. It's better than death. And that's exactly the kind of father that we trust and believe in is one who disciplines them, those whom he loves. This is Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Just listen to this as this word passes over you. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is a father who is involved in our lives and at times may wound us, not abuse us, but may wound us to discipline us unto repentance, which resurrects us out of the grave of our sin and death, which is the third point. God will resurrect us out of the grave of our sin and death. Look at the end of verse six. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. 
O Lord, my God. You see, just as the Lord cast Jonah into the pit, he is also the one who brings Jonah up from the pit. We are literally seeing the baptism of Jonah here. We are seeing the resurrection of Jonah here. In in his sin, Jonah's rebelling against the Lord, and then God washes away his iniquities, cleansing Jonah in the miry clay, in the belly of this fish, and then resurrects him to life on dry land. We'll see more of that here in a minute. Look back at the text, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. As Jonah is remembering the Lord, as he's recalling all of the knowledge he possesses of the Lord, his heart is finally beginning to catch up with his mind. We can see that his affections are beginning to shift. And this is actually a work of discipline for us as believers, as we are growing in the knowledge of the Lord. I mean, this, is, this right now is an act of you growing in the knowledge of the Lord as we walk through and preach God's Bible, His Word, His good news to us. As you go through the equipped classes and as you study and as you grow in the knowledge of the Lord, a discipline for us is to remember what's been taught. To recall it to mind. To memorize his word. To study it. To meditate on it. Because as we do the work of remembering the Lord and that our prayers come to him, he begins to transform and mold and shape our hearts as we see this in verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Hope and love begins to be language used of affections and desires that are changed. And then we see in verse 9, but I will, or, or but I with the voice of thanksgiving. Again, a motivation, a, a changing of affections and desires that are being shifted. Now a, a spirit of thanksgiving is seen out of Jonah. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. We're starting to see devotion here. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's now crying out to the Lord with something that he did not have when he entered into the belly of the fish. When he entered into the belly of the fish, he did not have hope and thanksgiving. He did not have of a voice of thanksgiving. He did not have a devotion of vow to the Lord. Ultimately, whatever you command me, I will pay. I will do. I will walk in step with. But here it is repentance and remembering and calling upon the Lord and seeing the goodness of God and in praying have God transform his heart. He is now able to utter with these lips salvation belongs to the Lord. And that brings us to the fourth point. God is the steadfast and love of our salvation. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see, when Jonah was on the verge of death because of doing things his own way, left his own vices, rebelling against the Lord, his life 
was literally fainting away. God brought him, as we talked about last week, God brought him to his end. And in disciplining him and wounding him, Jonah finally woke up. He finally woke up. If you remember, he didn't really wake up at the boat, right? Like he was asleep in the midst of the storm that he created because of the consequences of his sin, that God also did sovereignty sent. To begin, begin to get Jonah into this place of actually waking up. Because God, again, is the steadfast hope of our salvation. God had brought him to his end. He finally woke up in the belly of the fish. And he says, he remembered the Lord. It's like he's beginning to see what he knows with clear eyes. He no longer wanted to forsake his hope. Of steadfast love. He no longer wanted to take the relationship with God for granted like Adam and Eve did. And like at one point Noah did. And also Abraham. And also David. I mean, that's one of the beauties of all of the scriptures that every character that is played out in the story of God's redemptive plan at times reveal their sin. And that just gives us hope. That, that, that allows us to rest in the fact that as we are walking through our relationship with the Lord, there are going to be moments, just like Jonah, where we stray and we sin and we, we try to do things our own way. And God sends a storm and he casts us into deep in those moments and he allows us to be able to feel the weight and the consequences of our sin. And in that moment, he is kind to us. By allowing us to experience a taste of the death of our sin, but not actually die. Because of the work of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of him on our behalf. You see, a lot of times people wonder, they see how we get saved now because we're looking back on the work of Jesus. But how do they get saved in the Old Testament that Jesus had done on the cross yet? Well, thank God that God is the one who invented time and therefore stands above it and outside of it so that when he sees what Jesus is going to do, he's also at the same time looking back on what Jesus has done and he is using the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross to vindicate sins for everyone in his name. Who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who are looking to Jesus for the removal and forgiveness of their sins. So whether they are in the Old Testament looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, because of what was preached in Genesis 3, because of what was foreshadowed in the people of Israel, because of all the stories that God promising to see that will one day bless all the things of the earth, because, because of all of those things that are pointing to Christ, they have faith in what is coming. Just like we have faith in what has already come. And God is using literally this illustration of Jonah that it is all pointing to Jesus Christ alone. To vindicate the sins of even Jonah himself. Like in this moment, I don't fully know if Jonah understands the picture of what's happening. That he is literally just a walking illustration of what is actually saving him from the belly of the fish in the moment. 
is to realize that Jesus is the one who actually gets cast into the deep and gets his body broken and his blood shed. And then he spends three days, three nights in his shield in order for God to then resurrect him and put him on dry land in order to, in this moment, be able to resurrect him out of his sin and away from his death to bring him to salvation, to bring him to life and to place him on the solid ground. And so as we come to this time of communion, I want you to understand that Christianity is a belief in resurrection. It's a belief in resurrection. It's a belief that we actually die to ourselves and are reborn, made into a new creation. You see, Christianity is not about bad people coming and living. That, that's every other religion. If that were the case, in this story, God would have sent Jonah some things to do while in the middle of this fish in order to earn his ability to get out of the fish. All right, Jonah, if you, uh, let's see, maybe you can help someone. Well, there's no one else in there with you. Let's try something else. Uh, maybe you can, maybe you can give. I don't know. We threw all that over. We have no resources left. Like, like there's, there's, there's nothing that at this moment that Jonah can earn in order for God to bomb him out of his fish and put him back on the right. The only thing that Jonah can do is repent and And the fact that Jonah right here is still breathing and then being able to remember and call upon the Lord is his repentance and a rebirth. For the Lord to deliver him. Lord, you are, as he says, salvation belongs to you. That, that is, Lord, I am dying, and I am deserving of it. But in your grace, we you give you what I don't deserve. Will you give me life right now? And in your mercy, will you withhold from me what I don't deserve, which is death? And God, God looking at what his son did on the cross, takes that work and applies to Jonah's life and resurrects him out of the belly of shield and places his feet on dry land. And this is absolutely what we celebrate every single week when we come to the table of communion. This isn't just some fancy, weird ritual that we do. This is us remembering the Lord. Just as Jonah has done here, I remember the Lord. I remember him. And I call upon him because it's only in him that I will be saved. And it's only in him that we can actually live a life that is joyfully obeying all that God has commanded us. To put it in the way of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 5 to 11. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly 
be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has been made over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A moment ago I said Christianity is not about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people becoming alive. And that is exactly what happens for us when God allows us to get into this place of seeing that if we're left with our own devices, we kill ourselves and are deserving of the death. Everyone's in that But if we believe Jesus and him going to the cross, God does this supernatural thing where he takes your identity, which is made up of your mind, your heart, your soul, your flesh, all that makes you you and your uniqueness. In your, your Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by God on the head of my head. God knows who you are. Every single person has an account. With a number, he knows you. And when you're not in Christ, that account is headed into death. That's the debt of the account is death. And what God does is he takes that account... And he does this supernatural thing that when we hear the gospel, we remember the Lord, and we see the goodness of what Jesus has done on the cross, he takes your account and he nails it to Jesus. Jesus becomes it. He becomes your sin. He becomes your identity. And it is nailed to the cross. Everything that you deserve, God pours it out on Jesus and crushes it. Everything that Jonah did in all of the rebellion was being nailed to the cross on Jesus Christ and being absorbed by the wrath of God. And then another miraculous thing happens. All of the righteousness of Jesus. The fact that he lived a perfect life, never sinned, never had any thought, never had a bad word come out of his mouth, never had anything with evil intentions. Fully, 100%, 100% obey and enjoy wonderfully, wonderfully obey all the commands of the Father. So that if God looks at him, this is my beloved son, son, son and my well pleased. never does anything wrong. He's perfect. When, when our identity, that account, is placed on Jesus, Jesus takes his identity, his account, his righteousness, and he resurrects you. He, he kills, kills that old one, and he, he resurrects you. When he resurrects you, he denies you to that account, to that, that righteousness. So that when God now looks at you, knows. 
no, no sin. sin. This, this is my son. son. This, this is my, my daughter. You are well pleased. And we give you the joy of living the rest of our lives here and now and for eternity, remembering the word of the Lord and that it brought us life to the end of ourselves and killed us there in order for us to be made new and to walk with Him and to live with Him and to have Him live through us every day. And, and as it says, we are free, free, free from, from sin. sin. Praise, Praise God. God. Praise, Praise Jesus, Jesus for that. And we're going to pray this now as we do as he's made us to do to remember this. My prayer for us today is that we, we I mean, can do this every week. week. For some, some of you, you just, you just walk, walk through it, and it's just a ritual. For some, some of us, we do the word of remembering the Lord. Lord. And the and beauty there is that, and again, my prayer for us is the same here, is that it takes what's in your mind, and it also begins to stir up those affections in your heart so that that spiritual maturity actually matures and grows. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to stand. If you don't have that element, let go ahead and go back and grab it. We're going to stand. We're going to do this. We're going to remember the little word. Just as Jonah did when he found himself a belly of fish. This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of the name. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. As we partake of this, 
We are proclaiming the very thing that gives us this life. You remember at the very beginning I said God's purpose is life and death. Jesus paid death in order for God to give us life. That's it. He paid all we deserve to give us what we don't deserve. But because you are now children of His, and united to Christ, here's the beauty: you no longer have to be atheists and beat yourself up all the time. He sees you as a son of God. He's well pleased with you. He sees you as righteous. Because, because Christ, Christ lives in you, you, you are, are now deserving of inheriting all that God has. We're, we're, we're now, now more than conquerors. Because, because of Jesus, not because of you, but because, because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so, so I, I hope that this actually builds your affection for the Lord and allows you to walk with a little bit of extra step in your walk. That you, that you are his son, son you are his daughter, daughter because of what Christ has done in you. And so as so we, we remember, remember this, let's also, also now remember who we are in Christ, and who has made us to walk, walk in step with his spirit. Let's partake, partake together and worship him.
think you've been stirring for. Just reminds us of where we were dead and what you have done for us and get us into you who are alive. You can now walk in the aliveness that you've given to us to, to, to preach to this world that there is hope that, that we do not have to stay dead. That we need to walk in the newness of the body of you to give us. I love the stories of crazy. I love in Jesus' name. Other than that, you guys are dismissed.